Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're holding chapter 30. And this is the second chapter that Alter Rebbe is dealing with the question how a person deals with the dullness of the heart when a person loses interest, when a person becomes complacent, the person stops caring, and the heart doesn't respond. You may understand intellectually. There's no shortcoming intellectually. The heart is just tired, exhausted, worn out, worn thin, doesn't respond anymore. There's no enthusiasm, there's no excitement, there's no inspiration. A dullness of the heart. We're not talking about the, the depression, full-blown depression, where a person feels, a person feels worthless. And we're talking about a person stops caring. You know, I'm just there's no energy. I'm not, I'm not interested. You don't respond. So how do you deal with it? So he said that the root cause of this complacency comes from arrogance, because the ego. When you become conceited and um, you become arrogant, therefore it covers your heart, clogs your heart, and doesn't allow you, doesn't allow your neshama, your soul, which is there. It's buried, it's dormant, but it doesn't allow it to emerge and surface. Instead of having pure feelings and wholesome feelings and loving feelings and good feelings and kind feelings, you just feel clogged and you just stop caring. So... The way to deal with it is getting straight to the root cause, and that's, that's dealing with this conceit, with this arrogance. Now, conceit is something that a person could be entirely a delusional. You know, in your mind, even people who have nothing to be proud of feel very conceited. You know, people who are ugly feel beautiful. People who are foolish feel, feel brilliant. <laughs> People who have nothing, have accomplished nothing, feel that they're the most important uh, thing in the world and everything, you know, they deserve everything. And So conceit is, is just pure arrogance. It's hot air, there's nothing there. So you have to deflate this conceit. How do you deflate this conceit? So in this chapter, he's going to give us another antidote, another medicine, another approach, how to deal with this conceit. Don't forget, he's talking here to the Bainani. The Bainani is someone who's perfect. His actions, his behaviors is perfect. He's not doing anything wrong. So maybe he has what to be conceited about. It's one thing in the, in the previous chapter we were discussing someone who's just arrogant, complacent, and uh, conceited, and there's no reason for him to be conceited. So the Alter Rebbe there taught us how to, how do you deal, how do you deflate this, this balloon, this bubble that you've created? But here he's talking about someone who actually has what to be proud of. He's a Bainani, he's perfect. How do you deflate that arrogance, that conceit? And he says that the way to pierce the bubble, the way to deflate this arrogance is... In chapter 29, the Alter Rebbe discussed various means of overcoming timtum halev, the state of insensitivity in which one's heart is dull and unresponsive to his contemplation of God's greatness. All these methods are aimed at crushing one's spirit, whereby one crushes the cause of the timtum halev, the arrogance of the sitra achra of the animal soul. In chapter 30, the Alter Rebbe continues this discussion by outlining another method of dealing with this problem. One who suffers from Timtum Halev must also set his heart to fulfill the instruction of our sages, be lowly of spirit before every man. This is actually very difficult to understand because there's a concept of modesty and there's a concept of shiftless, be low of spirit. Moses was the most humble person that lived. He was modest. What does modesty mean? Modesty means that you know that you're superior to the other person. I mean, you know that you know who you are. You know your strengths. Moses knew that he was the only human being that went to heaven and back. Never before, never since. 
So Moses knew his place. He knew that he's the leader. And he knew that he's unique. And yet, he was the most humble person that ever lived. He was modest. As we learned earlier, he felt that every Jew was superior. Why? Because he thought to himself, of course I'm Moses, because I was born with the ability to be Moses. I was born with a special talent. God gave me special, uh, special abilities, special energies. I was born to such parents, leaders of the Jewish people. Amram and Yocheved, the daughter of Levi. But if, if another Jew would be in my shoes, if another Jew was given all the advantages that I was given, he would be a much greater Moses than I am. He would have taken my potential, my most, so much farther than I am. And vice versa, if I were born to that Jew's humble beginnings, I would have been far off, worse off than that Jew. So he felt that every Jew is better than him. But that's modesty, that's humility. But you know that you're greater than him. But that's not what the rabbis say in the Mishnah. Look carefully at the wording. Every word of the rabbis is precise. It says, In ethics of our fathers, You should actually feel that the other person, you should be low of spirit, that the other person is superior to you. Not only because if he were in my shoes, I were in his shoes. No, no, no. That means I am superior. But if he were in my shoes, he would have been even better. If I were in his shoes, it would have been worse. He is actually superior to you. You're actually lower than him. Which begs the question, what do you mean? How can you say, how can you say that you should, every person should be, you should consider yourself lower than every person? What do you mean? How could you compare? You're an upright citizen. You're an upstanding citizen. You study Torah. You come to the class. And you learn. You daven. You pray. You do mitzvahs. You give tzedakah. The bum, the low life, is not even here. Not even present. What, what do you mean? I'm, he's better than I am. I should feel lower than him. So this begs the question. The question is so strong. And many commentaries say the Mishnah can't mean literally that you should actually feel that the other person is better than you. What do you mean? If he's a bum in a low life and I'm a bainani, and I'm doing everything that's right, how can I pretend that that person... But it means you should act in a way as if the other person is superior to you. In other words, don't, don't, don't trump your own, your own horn. Don't blow your own horn. Pretend, act, as if the other person was superior to you. As if the other person was worthy of respect. Of course you're superior, but he's talking about behaviorally act as if the other person. Alter Rebbe says, no, that's not, that's not the true meaning. Because it says, the Mishnah says, the wording of the Mishnah, v'heve, heve means you should be, you should actually be lower than the other person. That the other person is actually superior to you. question is, how is that, what does that mean? How is that possible? Okay. Now, a number of commentators have noted a difficulty in this Mishnaic dictum, for the Hebrew language distinguishes between two types of humility. The first is a feeling of inferiority in comparison with others. The second is the absence of self-glorification, even while recognizing one's superiority. The thought that his superior qualities are a God-given gift, and that another man similarly endowed might in fact have invested them to better advantage. The former type of humility is called shvelut, literally lowliness, and the latter anivut. Since the Mishnah employs the adjective shafal ruach, it is explicitly advocating the former type of humility, and here the difficulty rises. Why should one regard himself as being lowlier than every man, lowlier even than the lowliest sinner? Because of this difficulty, some commentators interpret the Mishnah as saying, conduct yourself self-effacingly toward every man, i.e., treat every man with deference as though he were superior to you. The Alter Rebbe, however, objects to this interpretation as follows. The wording implies, be thus, and do not merely act thus. In all sincerity, in the presence of every man, even in the presence of the most worthless of worthless men, Kal Shebekalim. Having rejected this interpretation, however, we remain with the original difficulty. How is one expected to regard himself as being lowlier than the lowliest sinner? So if it means you should be, you should actually be, consider yourself a lower. 
then everyone, the Mishnah says, call Adam. Everyone means everyone, including the low life, the lowest of the low, the worthless, the person who has no self-respect, the person who has no self-control, no self-discipline, as a child, a little, any whim, he just has to follow, doesn't have any strength to resist any whim, any temptation. It's like a person who doesn't have a mind. A person who has a strong mind could control himself. So I have a whim, I have an urge, I have an instinct, but I control myself. I choose not. It's decisive, it's strong. A person who doesn't have a strong mind blows with the wind. You know, which, oh, I have a whim, I do this, I have an urge. You just are buffeted around, you're pushed around, you just follow every instinct, a very external, whatever, whatever comes up, that's how you follow. There's no internal drive, there's no internal sense, there's no focus, there's no concentration, there's no ability to make decisions and to choose and to decide and to actively choose. So this is a very weak person, a light-headed person. A worthless of a worthless. A person who feels so worthless, therefore has no self-value, has no self-esteem, has no, doesn't care. You know, if a person has self-value, self-worth, your time is precious, your, your body is precious, you know, you, you care, you choose carefully. You're not just going to do whatever. But a person who has no sense of worth, has no goals in life, has no ambitions in life, just, just wanders along, whatever comes... A person who has a sense of worth has a purpose. You choose what I'm going to do in life, and you go ahead and do it, and you get it done, and, and you move on. You do it. You do something constructive, something focused. On but a person who doesn't have that center, doesn't have that das, that maturity, it just floats around and wanders. You know, there's no inner sense. There's no inner uh, strength. So that's what he calls a worthless of a worthless person. He lives that type of life. doesn't care. Um, and just just doesn't follow the Torah and the mitzvot and just, just wanders around life. So worthless or worthless. So the Mishnah says that you should be feel lower than every person. And Alter Rebbe adds adds a hey. Every person. We're talking about every human being. Not only. Because there is a concept where where every Jew has to feel that a fellow Jew is superior to him. That it's a known thing, that every other Jew is superior to him. Why? Because the Jewish people are compared to a living organism, a dynamic living organism. We're like one cell, one organism. Every Jew is a different limb in that organism. We're like one, inseparable, like brothers and sisters, like family. We're one, we're connected. Jewish family. So every Jew is like a limb in this organism. Every limb is unique. Every limb is superior in a certain way. This limb is superior to all the other limbs. Because there's no other limb like this in the body. There's no, there's no, there are no redundant limbs in the body. There's nothing extra in the body. No spare tires. Even the appendicitis, which means extra, which they used to think is just like a spare tire, now they hesitate before they remove it because they know it's there for a reason. So every part of the body is unique. And in that sense, that limb is superior and is the leader for the entire body. Take the legs, for example. The legs all the way on the bottom. But the legs have the ability to walk. When the brain wants to go to the library to, to read, it, it has to have a healthy leg. So in that sense, the leg is the leader. The head is dependent on the leg. So of course the head is the leader. And the leg is the follower. The, head is the, little, the leg is the soldier. And the head is, is, is the general. Of course, a leg without a head is nothing. Even the heart without a head is very limited. Because, you know, you can, you can want something very badly, but the head gives you that perspective. It's like when you're hovering over and you see, listen, if you're going to go in this direction, you're going to go over the cliff. You know, the head gives you that light, that, that uh, awareness that this is not a right direction to go. You have the heat and you, have the, you want to do it, but, you know, there's not a smart thing to do and not a wise thing to do. So you have to, the head is the head. There's only one head. And the head has to rule. Even over the heart. But nevertheless, in a certain sense, the leg is the head over the head. It's superior. When it comes to the unique quality of the leg, when it comes to walking, only the leg can walk. And the entire body, the entire organism depends on the leg, and the leg has to to lead the way. So every limb in the body is unique. So when one, every Jew has to look at the other Jew that you are my head. 
you are superior to me. You are greater than me. The greatest tzaddik is to look at the simplest Jew, the greatest rabbi, mystic, and scholar. The deepest Jew, the most intense Jew, has to look at the simplest Jew, the Kabbalah, the tailor. This Jew is superior. Because he adds something to the Jewish organism. He expresses the Jewish organism, the Jewish whole, the Jewish soul in a unique way. There never was anyone like this and there never will be anyone like this. And what he brings to the table, we all depend on him because he brings something unique. So every one of us, since we have, each and every one of us has a unique individuality and a unique personality and character. So each and every one of us brings something to the table that no one else, no one else has. So that's a general sense. That's between one Jew and the next. But that's not what he's discussing. Here he's discussing a whole different concept. And that's why you're there in Ethics of Our Fathers. The, the regular version is that Adam there refers to the Jewish people. Because we're talking about how within the Jewish people, one, one Jew could be more accomplished than the other, one Jew could be a greater Torah scholar than the other. And nevertheless, you have to realize that every Jew is superior to you, genuinely superior. Because he's a unique limb. And that limb is unique and special. And there's no other limb like it. And we all depend on that quality. We all depend on that, on that, on that individual. But here he's talking about a different concept. And that's why he says the word ha'adam. Ha'adam refers in a broader sense, not only to the Jewish people, to any human being. That every human being is superior. The question is, really? Every human being is superior? Even the bum, the lowlife, the criminal? Who's sitting in jail? He's superior to me? What do you mean? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lawful citizen. I'm an upright citizen. I'm a good citizen. I should view that person as being superior to me? The Rebbe says, yes. <laughs> How? Continue. In answer, the Alter Rebbe states that the introspective Benoni will find that he often fails to wage war against his evil inclination to the same extent as the sinner is required to wage war against his desires. Although the lapses of the Benoni may be in seemingly inconsequential matters, they are more reprehensible than the lowly sinner's transgressions. Thus, even though the Benoni, whose observance of the Torah and mitzvot is impeccable, can indeed regard himself as being lowlier than literally every man, as the Alter Rebbe goes on to say, this can be accomplished by following the instruction of our sages. Judge not your fellow man until you have stood, i.e. placed yourself, in his place. For it is literally his place, i.e. his physical environment, that causes him to sin. Since his livelihood requires him to go about the marketplace all day, and whenever he is not thus engaged, he is of those who sit at the street corners. Thus his eyes see all sorts of temptation, and what the eyes see, the heart desires. It says, don't judge another person until you go into his place. So it could mean, don't judge another person until you get into his shoes. But it means his place means literally. His place physically and also figuratively. Where that person is at. First, physically, his geographic location. Because he has to work six days a week. And the place where his work leads him to, where he hangs out. He's not exactly hanging out in the synagogue, in the, in the pristine, sublime, holy environment. He's not immersed in holiness. He's out there in the streets, hustling to make a living. So the place. And he's going to say also the place where he is at internally. What kind of place is he? He's a person. Firstly, the place itself. When you're surrounded, today we can appreciate it more than ever, when you're immersed, bombarded with constant messages, visual messages, temptations, pulling you towards materialism. Worse than gashmas, materialism, consumerism, and pulling you, pulling you, in, in, pulling you down, pulling you into very cro- gross, crass of materialism. And temptation. And it's visibly, and it's open, and it's blatant, and it's in your face. A person can't help but be impressed. Because we are creatures, we're social creatures. 
it's even considered the norm. And, and yeah, yeah. It's so, it's so overwhelming that it becomes the norm. It's overwhelming, right? So when it's overwhelming and it's all around you and you're constantly bombarded, that's the nature. When the eye sees, the eye makes a huge impression. When the eye sees, the heart is tempted. So when you look at something and you're constantly looking at it, so even, even if ordinarily perhaps you wouldn't be tempted, you wouldn't be seduced, you wouldn't be tempted, but if you're constantly visually looking at it and you're constantly bombarded with it, it's going to have an effect on you. So the place that he's forced to spend most of his time, most of his conscious time, and that place is not a holy environment. It's a place where you're constantly seeing things that you shouldn't be seeing or things that are dragging you down or tempting you, seducing you or leading you astray. It has a tremendous impact. So think about it. Why is that person sinning? Why are you judging that person so harshly? You know that person is sinning? Because look at the place that he's at. Look at the place that he has to immerse himself. So much of his conscious waking time is immersed, constantly immersed in, in this environment. He's constantly being bombarded with these visual signals that are constantly crying out like a siren that's pulling him in. and He can't help but be affected. It's the power of seeing, the power of the eye. What you see affects you. Maybe if he wasn't in that environment, he wouldn't have had such effect. The, the, the Torah scholar, the Jew who's immersed in learning, is immersed in the synagogue, never steps foot out of the synagogue, shielded, is protected. Although today, uh, even if you don't step foot out of the door, the world comes to you. The internet, there's no, there's no hiding today, there's no running away, there's no hiding. If you don't come to it, it comes to you. But the, the person who's shielded doesn't have such an impact. But a person who is forced to go out there to make a living, you're not blind, deaf, and dumb. You see, it's, it's around. You can't miss it. It's, it's staring you in the face. So it has an impact. And it affects you. The eye sees and the heart desires. It's just, just a natural way of things. So that's why he's so affected. So why are you judging him? You're judging him that he's so lightheaded and he's such... A low life and a bum and the worthless of the worthless. Well, put yourself in his shoes. Put yourself in his position. If you're constantly immersed and surrounded by this stimulation, materialistic and grossness and materialization, who knows what? Who knows where you would be? What kind of impact it would have on you? That's looking at it from the geographic location. How much more so? Also, you have to take into account where he's at psychologically. Spiritually, maybe he's a person who by nature is just a very hot-blooded person. If you have a cold-blooded person and put him in that environment, he doesn't respond because he's ice. Ice ice preserves, you know. When you keep something frozen, it could stay there for years. <laughs> the butcher has stuff lying there from the 1970s, <laughs> frozen, <laughs> preserved. They, they found fossils from thousands of years ago in the ice. It's preserved. It's like fresh, like yesterday. Ice doesn't change. So a person who's by nature ice cold, he's not affected by his environment. He just couldn't care less. But a person who's hot-blooded, a person who's, who's on fire, and, he, and you put him in such an environment with constant stimulation, he can't help but, but just he's bursting all over the place. He can't help himself. Continue additionally. Additionally, it may be his spiritual place, the nature of his evil impulse, that leads him to sin. His evil nature burns like a baker's fiery oven, which is heated with greater frequency and intensity than a domestic oven. As it is written in Hosea, it burns like a flaming fire. So he says like a, uh, the, the baker's oven. A regular oven, you turn on and you turn off. But a baker's oven, sometimes it goes 24-7. It's so hot, it doesn't even pay to turn off. They heat it once, and it stays on for six months. It's constantly hot, 3,000 degrees. In your house, your oven is not 3,000 degrees. Even, even the self-cleaning ovens, 500. Self-cleaning, maybe 800 when you self-clean it. And you turn it on and turn it off. In other words, it's a small fire. But this person has a Yetzirah, an evil inclination. His, his blood is boiling, and he has like a baker's fire. So imagine, here he's living in this world. He's getting bombarded with all this stimulation. And he just responds because the nature, his nature, the place that he is psychologically, he's on fire. 
He's just a passionate, hot-blooded person. He can't help but respond. He's, he's, he's totally stimulated and on fire. So what do you expect from him? Continue. It is different, however, with him who goes about but little in the marketplace, and most of the day he is at home rather than at the street corners, and he therefore encounters less temptation. Even if he does go about the marketplace all day so that his physical place is the same as that of the Kal Shibakalim, yet it may be that his spiritual place is different, in that he is not so passionate by nature, and is therefore not as greatly tempted by the sights of the marketplace. For the evil impulse is not the same in everyone. One person's nature may be more passionate, and the others less so, as explained elsewhere. The al explained, like in this week's Torah portion, the Torah describes the different animals that are offered as a sacrifice. The Torah says you have the bull, and you have the sheep, and you have the goat. The bull is like a bull in the china shop. A bull is raging, <coughs> raging bull. Axe, a bull, uh, uh, a goat is very like cold by nature. A goat doesn't budge. You know, stubborn like a goat. A goat is very cold, very calm, like ice. The exact opposite of a bull. So you have different personalities, you have different animals, different personalities, different characteristic traits, different egos. You have a person who's hot-blooded, he's on fire, you know. He responds to stimulation and it exacerbates and gets his blood boiling. And you have another person like a goat. Doesn't respond to anything, ice-cold, stubborn, unmovable, um, very quiet. Um, so, you know, it's different, it's different characteristic traits. So just because... Maybe you are in the same place physically as, the, as this worthless of worthless. But the reason why he ends up being and behaving like someone who's worthless of worthless and you still do the right thing is nothing, nothing to be proud of. It's just your nature. You're just a very cold person by nature. You're just ice cold. You don't respond to anything outside of yourself. You live in your own world. You entertain yourself. You take you... You don't need other people. You don't respond to outside stimulation. You just have, you just, you know, you just live in your own world. So it's not because of any greatness on your part. It's just, just your nature. So what do you expect from, from that other person? Now the Alter is going to explain this is not an excuse. Here he's not justifying in any way. He's not rationalizing the behavior of the worthless of worthless. He's still called the worthless of worthless because he's a wicked person because of the choices that he makes. Because this is not an excuse. Even a person who, in order to make a living, is forced to spend six days a week and most of his waking hours in this environment, and he can't help but be bombarded by this stimulation. For business, he has to travel. He has to go all over. He has to spend time in Las Vegas. He has to run here and run there. And wherever it is, he's constantly being exposed to this stimulation. Bombarded. And his nature is, he's fiery by nature. He's not a cold person by nature. He's a fiery person by nature. And he just can't help but be overstimulated and respond and has a tremendous effect on him. That's not an excuse for him not doing the right thing. Because the bottom line is that God doesn't give us a test that we can't handle. It's a test. It's a tremendous test. But God doesn't give us a test that we can handle. He expects us to do the right thing despite the fact that we live in a world where we're overstimulated, and despite, despite the fact that you almost can't help but bump into it, and despite the fact that you may have a fiery evil inclination and like a, uh, the ovens, uh, the baker's ovens, it's on fire, it's heat, it's so hot, you can't help. It's not an excuse. You still have the ability to control yourself. God expects you to control yourself. And if you don't, then he labels you the worthless of worthless, and you're a rush. So for yourself, it's not an excuse. But that's for yourself. But for another person, the Mishnah says, don't judge him so harshly. Don't dismiss him so quickly. Put yourself in his shoes first. What would you do if you were him? We're not so sure how you would look. Maybe you'd look like him or worse. <laughs> so, so relax. Before you jump to conclusions, you dismiss the person and you treat him lightly and you... Look down at him and you denigrate him in your mind, in your heart. We're not, we're not talking about necessarily externally. Because externally, a Torah scholar has to carry himself with dignity. He can't 
pretend that the, uh, you can't behave publicly that the low life of the low life is superior to you, then, then no one will honor the, honor the Torah. You have to have certain dignity. If it carries over dignity, but it means internally. Don't feel arrogant towards the other person. Don't judge the other person. Don't, don't, don't dismiss the other person. You have to treat the other person with, with tremendous respect internally. And that, that, that's what he's going to explain. But if the misdeeds of the Kal Shebekalim are indeed attributable to his environment and to his passionate nature, why does he deserve his derogatory appellation? To this, the Alter Rebbe replies, In truth, even he who is extremely passionate by nature and whose livelihood obliges him to sit all day at the street corners has no excuse whatever for his sins, and he is termed a Rasha Gamur, an utter evildoer, for not having the dread of God before his eyes. For he should have controlled himself and restrained the feeling of a desire in his heart because of the fear of God who sees all his actions. This fear of God would have enabled him to overcome his desires, despite the difficulties imposed by his surroundings and his nature. For, as explained above, the mind has supremacy over the heart by nature of one's birth, i.e., it is man's inborn characteristic that his mind is able to master and restrain his heart's desires. So he says, very interestingly, in every word of the Alter Rebbe, as we saw in the beginning of the chapter, every letter he changed Adam to Ha Adam is so meaningful. Look at the change. He says that because the fear of God, page 396, because the fear of Elohim was not before his eyes, and then he says he should have controlled his uh, desire in his heart because of the fear of God, he uses Pachad Hashem, a different name of God, two different names of God, Hashem and Elohim. This is precise. It's not just accidental how the Rebbe changed for poetic reasons. Because what he's saying here is, the Talmud says that there are, two, there are two brokers that lead a person to sin. One is the eye and one is the heart. The eye, you begin with the eye, and when the eye sees, leads to temptation, and that leads you to sin. The eye is external. The eye, you see, but it leaves an impression on you. Even if you don't steer, you just see in passing, but it leaves an impression on you. That leads to a temptation of the heart, which is more internal. So too, amongst the two names of, of, of God, Hashem and Elohim, Elohim is more external, and Hashem is more internal. So he says, the first thing is, a person should have had the fear of Elohim in him. They shouldn't even look in the first place. Even though you're immersed in that environment, so you don't look. Just because it's around you and you're bombarded by it, you can control your eyes. Watch where you're looking. You don't have to look at everything. Not everything that's there has to be seen. So that's number one. But even when a person did see, he couldn't control himself, he's slow. And therefore, which leads to the temptation of the heart, you'd still have the ability, because of the fear of Hashem, not to follow your heart's desire. That's a more internal fear. Because of the fear of Hashem, the awareness of Hashem, you have the ability to control your heart's desire. How does a person control his heart's desire? He said, because that's human nature. God created us with the ability that the mind can control the heart. We're not in control of our heart. We're the Benini. 99.9% of us don't have control of our heart. But we do have control of our mind. So if we meditate and we reflect with our mind on the reality of Hashem, until it becomes a, a living reality, that could become part of our life. When you think about it, that God is with us, and He sees us, and He's watching us, and He cares one way or the other. Here's how we behave. When you incorporate that into your thinking, into your awareness, and based on that, you could control your heart. Yes, I have an urge, I have an instinct, I have a desire, but the answer is no. I'm afraid of God. God is here. Then the fear of God or the awe of God, of God's presence becomes a reality to you. God becomes a reality. To most of us, God is not a reality. God is such an abstraction. It's such an irrelevancy, so irrelevant. That we may mouth the words, but it has no meaning and it has no relevance whatsoever. The fact is, it doesn't change our behavior. A human being that's present will change our behavior. God's presence has zero impact on our behavior. So that's, that's the level of God's, of God's reality to us. So the, the idea of awe of Hashem is and God becomes a reality to you. How does God become a reality to you when your heart is pulling you in a different direction? Because of the mind. 
when you think about it and you meditate and you reflect and you focus and you concentrate until you become part of your thinking and your awareness that God is here, God is present, He's standing right next to me and He's watching me. So God is here. You have to behave. I don't want to, I would rather do something else, but clearly you have no choice. God is here, God is standing here. You got to do the right thing. God is present for no other reason. If the principal was standing there, you wouldn't dare do something, right? So God himself is standing here. Uh, listen, I, I would want to do something, but I can't. I just can't. I'm being watched. So that's, that's the fear, the awe, the, pre- the sense of God's presence that allows me to control my heart. So even though my heart is on fire, like the baker's oven, and even though I'm constantly bombarded and overstimulated, it's no excuse. The fear of God, the awe of God, the sense of God's presence and God's reality, because mind over matter, we all are in control of our mind, every one of us is in control of our mind, therefore we do have the ability to control ourselves. And it's no excuse. There's no rationalization, there's no justification. When we come up above in the heavenly court after 120 years, there's no answer, no excuse, but I couldn't control myself. It wasn't my fault. It was, the world was so corrupt, the world was so decadent, the world was so... It was all around me, I couldn't help myself. There's no, there's no excuse. You're responsible for yourself. And, and you, do, you have the strength to overcome it. God doesn't give us a test we can't handle. If he demands and expects of us, it means he's giving us the strength to do it. But we have to be strong. It takes tremendous strength. And that's the point that he's leading up to. Why do you feel so haughty and arrogant? Why are you judging the other person? Why are you so dismissive, dismissive of the other person? You feel so superior and the other person is a bum, a low life, a good for nothing, and you're a paragon of virtue. Why? Where does this arrogance come from? Because look at the other person's weakness. The other person is a worthless, a worthless, a weak person. They fall through and there's no strength and there's no Torah and there's no mitzvah. Look at his behavior. It's disgusting. It's repulsive. It's ugly. The person's a criminal. Well, let's think about it a moment. It's hard for us to even imagine because we're not in that position. The way we, we condemn, let's say worst case scenario, we condemn a murderer, a rapist, a horrible, disgusting human being. Now, let's wait a minute. We can't even relate to it because we have no temptation. You ever tempted to murder anyone? Were you ever in your life tempted to murder? We can't even relate to it. You ever tempted to rape anyone? We, We can't even relate to it. And we're angry at this bum, at this low life, this illiterate, uneducated, bum low life who grew up probably without a father, without a mother, who grew up with, like in the streets, in the jungle, in the wild. And we're angry at him. How dare you murdered someone? How dare you raped someone? Could you even relate to the type of struggle that that person had? Do you know what kind of discipline, you know what kind of strength it would have taken this person who has this urge to murder, which we can't even relate to, and to hold himself back? You know what kind of strength of character, of soul, it would take for this person to restrain himself? And we're angry at this person why he didn't restrain himself. Why he gave in to his urge and, his instinct, and committed this horrible crime. There was a great Hasidic Rebbe, Rabbi uh, Lel of a Rebbe. He was once traveling in the forest. And he came back. He was all shaken up. He said, he overheard, he saw um, two farmers in the forest, a, a father and a son. And the son was standing over his father with an axe. And he says, you know, I want to kill you now. That's how upset he was with his father. He says, the only reason I can't kill you is because I'm afraid of God. So I'm not going to kill you. He says, do I have the same fear of God like this person had? <laughs> he was ready to kill his father. That's how angry he was. And that's the type of person he was. He had this urge to kill his own father. <clears throat> but because... He feared God. He controlled himself. He said, I'm not going to do it. He says, do I have the same fear of God as that person has? Do I have the same struggle that person has? Am I ready? Am I ready to overcome such a struggle for the sake of God? Maybe my Torah, my mitzvot, 
is because it's easy for me. I don't have to struggle. It comes easy for me. It's my nature. I'm cold by nature, so this overstimulation doesn't affect me. Or I'm not in that environment, so I'm not affected by it. Or for external reasons. But I don't really have to struggle. For me, my service of God comes easy. It comes natural. Do I expect of myself the same thing I'm expecting from that low life, from that worthless of worthless, from that murderer, that rapist? Am I expecting the same thing of myself from that person? I'm upset at him. Why? He didn't overcome his, his murderous rage. Well, do you ever overcome anything in your life? Do you, did you ever have to struggle with, with something like that? Are you serving God in the same level? Would you be able to overcome your, your nature just for the sake of God? So what are you judging? What are you standing in judgment of the other person? You're better than the other person? Who says you're better? Yes, externally you're better. You're a nice citizen. You're an upright citizen. You pay your taxes. You do everything that's right. You don't break the law. Externally, by the books, you're a beautiful citizen. The other person is a low life, is worthless, is a bum, is a criminal. But in a real sense, let's go a little deeper. In a real sense, Who is really a better person? Are you really a better person than that person? Not so sure. (laughs) That person, you're angry at that person. You're upset at that person. You're condemning that person. You're judging that person. Viciously condemned. Why? Because he didn't overcome his murderous rage. He should have done the right thing. Even though he had his murderous rage. What a low life. What a bum. How dear he went ahead and did that. Okay. Do you have to overcome such, such, such powerful urges? Such powerful, raging uh, urges and instincts? Is there anything in your life that you have to overcome? That you have to struggle with? Such a powerful struggle? Are you ready to do that for the sake of God? Are you ready to overcome your own nature? Are you ready to change, to make that lion change and that heroic, heroic change? Are you ready to do that? No, you're not ready to do that. You're living very complacent, very comfortable. You only do what's easy and comfortable and simple and light and superficial. But you expect from that person, that bum, that low life, you're expecting the world. And you're angry at him that either hasn't changed. Are you ready to change? Have you changed in your life? Did you make such a change in your life? How dare you sit in judgment of the other person? So the other person is, is you're not better than the other person. Don't look at it externally, quantitatively, why? By the book. By the book, of course. This is a beautiful citizen, upright citizen, and this guy is a bum, a low life. Let's go a little deeper. Let's look at the soul of the matter. The soul of the matter, who's better? I don't know who's better. You're definitely not better than him. So why are you sitting in judgment? On the bottom of 396, truly. Truly, it is a great, fierce struggle to break one's evil nature, which burns like a fiery flame for the fear of God. Indeed, it is like a veritable test. Therefore, every man ought to weigh and examine his own position according to the standards of his place and rank in divine service, as to whether he serves God in a situation requiring a comparable struggle in a manner commensurate with the dimensions of such a fierce battle and test as the Kal Shabakalim faces. For even the most dispassionate and cloistered of men must often engage in battle with his evil inclination, both in the area of doing good and that of turning away from evil, as the Alter Rebbe goes on to illustrate. It's very easy to be a hero when you're you're cloistered, you're sheltered, you're not exposed to any negativity, you don't have any strong temptations, you're not a passionate person, and you're doing the right thing. What are you so proud of? <laughs> what, what makes you, that makes you a better citizen than the other person? That makes you a better person than the other person? No. Let's, let's see some real heroism. Let's see some, some real change. Are you ready to make such a dr- drastic change that you're expecting from this bum in low life? You're angry at him. Why isn't he changing? You want the transformation, 180 degree transformation, a huge transformation. A core transformation. And you're angry at him why he didn't control his, himself and he went ahead and he's living the type of lifestyle that he's living. Okay, are you, ready to, are you ready to make that type of sacrifice? Are you ready to make that type of change? 
Are you ready to overcome your nature? To struggle? We're talking about an intense struggle here. We're not talking about a minor, a minor change. We're talking about a dramatic change. Anyone who's on fire, who's harder, who has an urge, and you expect him to control himself, are you, are you ready to make that type of intent, that intense type of change, that quality type of change in your life? No. So why are you judging the other person? You're better than the other person? You're better than the criminal? Not so sure. So relax. Before you start getting so arrogant and haughty and, and sitting on the you know, top of the horse and judging everyone and dismissing everyone... Come on, it's just conceit. It's just arrogance. Think about it honestly. Think about it. Uh, who, who's ahead? Who's superior? Who's inferior? Who's, who's ahead? Who's, who's behind? Who's, who's for real? Who's not for real? Let's get real here. So this arrogance, there's no need for this arrogance. Of course, society should condemn behavior. We have to judge behavior, we have to condemn behavior, we have laws, and we have courts, and we have punishment. But this conceit and this arrogance, before we start feeling so conceited and, and arrogant and haughty, and, there's no need for that. Don't, don't. You can empathize with it. You can put yourself in the person's shoes. You want the criminal to be better, you want him to change. Show him. Lead by example. Let's see you make, make a change. Let's see you change your life. A dramatic change. A drastic change. Then you'll inspire the criminal that he should change his life. So there's no room for this error. Every person, you should feel humble. Not only humble, you should feel that every person is superior to you. Am I sure that that person is, is inferior to me? I'm not so sure. <laughs> And that's a humbling thought. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> Maybe that criminal, a low life and bum, is perhaps uh, superior to me. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's a very humbling thought. I better get my act together. What, what, what am I? I'm so complacent and proud of myself. I'm, I'm dull-hearted. I'm falling asleep as if, as if uh, there's nothing to live for. Nothing to live for. You haven't even started. You haven't even scratched the surface. Look what a position you are, that the bum and the low life, the rapist and the murderer, perhaps a better person than you are. That's a sobering thought. That's, that's, a, that's enough to wake you up. Spell the coffee. I better wake up. I better start living. Well, what am I sleeping? I haven't even started my service of Hashem. And the change doesn't have to be in the negative. Maybe I'm not doing anything wrong. We're talking about the Bainini. The Bainini is living a perfect life. He's not doing anything wrong. He's not committing any crime. He's not doing anything wrong. And he's doing everything that's right. But the question is, are you really exerting yourself? Are you really changing your nature for the better? Are you making a quantum leap forward? Are you changing, drastically changing your nature? Because even a good habit, even a good nature, if you're just doing it because it's natural and it's habitual, that's very external, superficial. Are you really ready to make that real change only for the sake of Hashem? And that's, and that's what he's focusing on. He's focusing, he's focusing on the good. Because the negative, we don't have to deal with. The negative, the Bainini is not doing anything wrong. There's nothing to change. He's not doing anything wrong. So, period. But we're talking about in the positive. The problem, is the, the problem is not your bad. The problem is not your bad habits or the things you're doing wrong. The problem is the good things that you do. One chassid tells the other, I'm not worried about my sins. He says, I'm worried about my mitzvah. That worries me. That doesn't, doesn't, doesn't let me sleep. The sins, I know I did something wrong. I have to fix. But a mitzvah, I'm so complacent and proud. What? The mitzvah is dead. Am I really doing the mitzvah? Am I doing it properly? Am I doing it with all my heart and all my soul and all my being? It's an embarrassment. My mitzvah is an embarrassment. Am I changing my life and I'm going to do the mitzvah with tremendous intensity and tremendous energy? The same energy that I demand and I expect from the wicked one, from the worthless of worthless. I'm expecting a powerful surge of energy for him to overcome his negative urges and instincts and do the right thing. Where's your powerful surge of energy? Where's your strength? Where's your, where do I, I don't see you demanding of yourself the same thing you're demanding from this little bum and low life. And you're superior than him? It says whoever is arrogant, it says is a fool. 
right? Whoever is arrogant is a fool. And uh, is also poor in spirit, impoverished in spirit. Arrogance spells impoverished in spirit. A person who is humble is wealthy, has wisdom, is wise, has wealth of soul, wealth of, is, is truly wealthy. A person who is arrogant is impoverished, emotionally impoverished, spiritually impoverished. And um, it's just very, very foolish. And his cleverness is just actually very foolish. For a person who's modest and humble, that's really the foundation of life, the foundation of a Jew's life, humility. When there's no arrogance and there's no conceit and there's no, I demand this and I demand that and I need this and I need that and I deserve this and I deserve that and I deserve everything, you know, that's the root of all mental illness. When a person has this conceit and this arrogance, when a person has humility as a foundation, that that's, leads to a healthy, wholesome, good life, a rich life, inner rich life, a rich inner life, a satisfying life, a loving life, a wholesome life. And this is what the Rebbe is dealing with, how a person deals with his conceit. How do you overcome your conceit? So that he's giving us a very powerful antidote when a person really takes stock of himself honestly reference to the other person. He turns the whole table around. That it's not only don't be conceived, don't be arrogant towards another person. Pretend that you're uh, that the other you're lesser than the other person. He's saying, no, it's for real. You are lesser than the other person. <laughs> this really will deflate the many balloons because people live in La La Land and delusionary and they're so conceited and they're so proud of themselves and they're so... And we're talking about someone who has a reason to be proud. What do you mean? I'm doing the right thing. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm studying Torah. I'm a, look at me, and I'm such a good Jew, and I'm so this. By the time we're through with this chapter, <laughs> you really say every single person, not only every single Jew, every single human being is better than me. That's, <laughs> that's enough to break your heart into a thousand pieces and to come alive again, to be inspired again, and to recapture your enthusiasm and your eagerness. <laughs> <laughs>